Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So Revelation chapter 3, I'm going to go ahead and read through it once. Actually, I'll hold off on reading it. I want to share a couple things first, um, just kind of a kind of a, a reminder. Maybe you haven't been here for the other chapters that we've been going through, chapters one and chapters two of Revelation. But one of the things that's unique about the book of Revelation is that the Bible tells us that there's a blessing. In fact, it's in Revelation one, chapter three. It says, "Blessed is he." who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. So there's a blessing for us uh, to, uh, you know, to study this word, uh, to read it. So if you're, if you're reading uh, revelation, there's a blessing in it. If you're listening to me reading it to you or somebody reading it, there's a blessing uh, for you in that. Uh, And then also, Keeping the things because, you know, we want to obey the word. We want to obey what the Lord's telling us. We want to, we want to, we want to be a part of our lives. And so uh, there's that blessing in it for us. So just a reminder of that as we go through the book of Revelation. Um, The next thing I want to remind us all on is that uh, Jesus himself provides an outline uh, for the book of Revelation in chapter one, verse 19. He tells John, write the things which you have seen. And that was the vision in chapter 1 of Jesus himself. And then he says, write the things which are, which, which we're going through right now. That's the letter to the seven churches. That's chapters 2 and 3. Uh, and it's representing the church age that you and I are living in today. And then he says, write the things which will take place after this, chapters 4 through 22. And that is after what? After the church age, the, the, the time that we're looking at right now the things that will take place after the church age. So that's really the outline of Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation. Now, when we get to chapters 4 through 22, that'll be broken up further, and we'll we'll explain that when we get to that, because I don't want to add too much confusion. Oh, it's not really confusing, but I just don't want to add that right now. The next thing I want to share that we've been kind of looking at each one of these letters is that there's seven aspects to each of the letters uh, the first of all, there's a salutation, you know, to the to the angel of the church of, and then whatever whichever church he's addressing, and then there's a revelation of Jesus, and it's based on his revelation that he revealed to John in chapter one. Uh, you know, it's uh, these things says he who, and then it, and then there's this description, and the description is unique and applicable to each of the letters. And we'll see that even this morning as well. And then there's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition. The Lord knows what's going on in each of these churches. He knows what's going on in this church. He knows, he knows our hearts. He knows the motives. He knows what are what, the works that we're doing. He knows those things. And so he reveals the knowledge of their spiritual condition. And then he has a unique message to each church. And then it's followed with a promise or a warning of his coming. Now, it's a promise if he doesn't have any, you know, there's a couple churches like the Church of Smyrna, you know, the promise of his coming, the the Church of Philadelphia, the promise of his coming. Um, But the other churches, there are issues with those churches. And so it's a warning. Hey, if you don't repent, you know, I'm coming. You need to repent. Um, And then there's an admonition for the individual to hear what the Spirit says. And then finally, the promise to the individual overcomer. So that's, you know, each of these letters have those seven aspects to them. So let's go ahead and and turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to look at the church of Sardis. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you were alive, but you were dead. Be watchful, And strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy." He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess, excuse me, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what's the application to this letter to the church of Sardis? Um, You know, and I've done this study before, maybe you have too, but you can look at each one of these seven letters and you can kind of correlate them with different periods in church history. I'm going to just briefly take take you through that, although that's not, we're not going to look at that application and I'll explain why later. But first of all, Ephesus really represents the very first early church the church in acts and 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 you know after that uh, probably the first hundred or so years the church of ephesus the letter to the church in ephesus then the letter to the church in smyrna represents the persecuted church under 10 successive roman emperors remember they'd be persecuted for 10 days 10 periods of time and then the letter to the church in pergamos represents the imperial church which basically is about the time when constantine issued his edict of toleration the 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 christians had been persecuted so severely during those 10 different emperors and then constantine came to power and he had this vision and and uh, at that point Uh, he basically legalized Christianity. And so that represents the imperial church, the the church in Pergamos. And then the church in Thyatira, really a picture of the the Holy Roman Catholic Church period. And then we get to where we're looking at this morning, Sardis, which a lot of people say, well, that's a picture of the Reformation church age started by, well, basically started in the beginning by John Wycliffe. uh, uh, I think his name was John Huss. John Huss, Martin Luther. A lot of people say, well, it was right when Martin Luther uh, nailed his 95 theses to the, to the church door in the Wittenberg there, Castle, um, and, and John Calvin. Those things, you know, that, that the letter of the church of Sardis really represents the Reformation Age churches. And then the church of Philadelphia, uh, starting around the 1800s, the, the Evangelical Missionary Church, and then finally Laodicea, the Apostle. Uh, I was going to say apostolic, but not the apostate church. Um, And, you know, I've done that study. I've looked in there and it's, it's very fascinating. It's an interesting study. And I think there is, I think there's something to that, but I don't like to just focus on that because then I'd be just filling you with some knowledge. Oh, isn't that, that's fascinating. Okay. That's interesting. But how does it apply to me? So I don't want to do that. A lot of other people say, well, you know, the letter to the church in Sardis uh, you know, really represents dead denominational churches. And I think there's definitely an application there as well. But when I'm reading this, I think, well, what about our own church? What about Calvary Chapel, Rochester? Because there's an application for us here as well. Not only our church, but us as individuals. That's why he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just that church, it, it applies to us as well. And what about our own personal application, the individual overcomer? So let's talk about Sardis. Sardis, the city itself, was located 60 miles inland from Smyrna. It was located about in the middle between Thyatira to the northwest and uh, Philadelphia to the southeast. It was located on trade routes, and as a result of having lots of trade, it was an extremely wealthy city. The ancient city of Sardis was extremely wealthy. Its industry, you know, when I go traveling around, I don't know if you do this, you go around different towns in different different states, or, you know, you're traveling around, you get into a town, and my first question is, I wonder what the industry is here. I wonder how people make a living. I just, it's it's something I'm fascinated with, so I, I usually try to find out about places. Uh, anyways, what was, how did people make a living in Sardis? Well, uh, the industry was textiles, jewelry, and dyed cloth. In fact, the art of dyeing wool is said to have been invented in Sardis. It was also the ancient residence of the kings of Lydia, um, and, uh, there was one king by the name of Croesus. Now, maybe he doesn't sound too familiar to you, but he was proverbial in his day for being wealthy. In fact, they had a saying to be as rich as Croesus. He was like the guy who touched anything and it just basically, you know, he was like the Trump of his day. He touched something and it just, it, everything turned out well for him, uh, made lots of money. Um, <clears throat> coins were first minted, minted at Sardis. And uh, Cyrus the Persian... If you remember Cyrus, uh, the, per- the king of Persia, um, he conquered, captured 
Sardis in 548 BC, and it is said that he took $600 million worth of treasure from the city when he captured it. So a very wealthy city when Croesus was the king. Speaking of Cyrus, I don't know if you caught the news this week, but uh, President Trump has been compared to a modern-day Cyrus. Now, who is Cyrus? He was the king of Persia. He was the king who, uh, after the Babylonian captivity, they, the Persians conquered Babylon. And uh, <clears throat> he's the one that allowed the Jews to return back to Israel and to start rebuilding their temple. He had been prophesied in the book of uh, Isaiah. And, uh, and, uh, and he fulfilled the prophecy, of course, because that's God's word. Um, but he allowed the Jews to rebuild uh, Israel and the temple. And President Trump's decision to finally go through with moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. There are Jews in Israel right now that say he's a modern-day Cyrus. Um, He and President Truman have a lot in common. In fact, President Truman was also called a modern-day Cyrus. What, uh, What did President Truman... By the way, he was a Democrat, so if you are really political... Fascinating, but President Truman was a Democrat. Um, He's the one who made the decision to first to be the very first country to formally recognize the nation state of Israel on May Fourteenth, nineteen forty-eight. Very fascinating, and there's there's a lot of similarities between him and President Trump in this sense. Truman was opposed by just about everybody in his cabinet. His secretary of state said, if you do this, I'm not going to vote for you in the next election. Um, he was opposed by the State Department. Uh, most, if not all of his advisors opposed what he did, but he went and did it anyways. Why did he do it? Um, he was influenced very greatly by his Christian upbringing. His mother used to read the Bible to him, the Old Testament to him. He knew all about the, the, the Jewish people and God's promises to them, and it impacted him. That's why, you know, the children's ministry, it's not like it's just some, we're going to just send the kids back here so that they're out of our hair, you know, so we can pay attention. We're not just No, there's ministry taking place right in the next room. That's why children's ministry is so vital. And uh, President Truman was raised up with a very strong Christian upbringing. The other thing that I think is interesting, he had a plaque, a famous plaque on his desk that said, the buck stops here. He was the kind of leader that our country has been hungry for. And I think that is, you may not agree with President Trump's policies. Maybe you didn't vote for him. He said some very crass things that are undefensible. But listen, he's a leader. And our country has been in desperate need of a leader. And this man is, is doing things. So I would encourage you to pray for him. I think God is using him. It's fascinating to me how all this is going to play into last days. Um, it, it's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, because we know that the Bible says that all the nations of the world, which you know, I would assume would include the United States, eventually all of us, all the nations are going to be turned against Israel. So... Very fascinating where we're at right now in this point in history. So, all right, but this isn't a sermon about President Trump. Let's go back to Sardis. Um, Sardis was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asia Minor. Until 549 B.C., it was the capital uh, of the kingdom of Lydia. And in 17 A.D., under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, it was destroyed in an earthquake. Now, the Roman Empire taxed all the provinces. You know, they, they taxed all the people in all the provinces. When that earthquake occurred, he decided to stop taxing the people of, of Sardis so that they could use their funds to rebuild their city, which they ended up doing. And although the city had a very rich history and at one time it was the most important politically and wealthiest of cities, in perspective with its former history, the newly rebuilt Sardis was a shell of what it had been. That's not just an interesting tidbit. I think it very much fits in why Jesus is drawing this, addressing this letter to the church of, of Sardis. So what's Christ's knowledge of their spiritual condition there in verse 1. 
And by the way, he has nothing positive to say about this church. He did about the other churches. It's the first church. He has nothing positive to say about them. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. They did works. They did works. They had all kinds of things going on, right? They had programs. They had activities. If they, had a, if they were here in Rochester, you'd drive by every night of the week. The lights were on. The parking lot was filled. Things were happening there. It was the place to go to. It was the church to be a part of. Um, it, they had a full bulletin. They had ministries probably for every age group. I mean, they had everything going on, all kinds of social events going on. They were over, maybe they had a very overwhelmingly busy website. You know, that's one of the things that we try to do is keep our website really simple. Maybe it's too simple, but I like it simple. Go to some websites, and it's like you can't find your way through it. There's just so much junk on it. It's just like I'm a simpleton, all right? I, just, I need just a couple things to focus on. But anyways, this, this church had all kinds of activity. <coughs> Excuse me. And he says they have a name that they're alive. They have a reputation, but it's from the past. You know, from an outside observer, they were bustling with activity. They looked alive. I mean, they, they, they had everything going on. In fact, if you would ask them, hey, well, how's your church? They go, man, we're alive. We got all kinds of stuff going on. There's something for everybody at our church. But Jesus says, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You're dead. What does that tell us? Well, I think one of the things it tells us is that man's estimation, maybe our estimation of what a successful church is, may not necessarily be what God's estimation of a successful church is. Paul warned, warned uh, Timothy about people, and he said it in 2 Timothy 3.15, who have a form of godliness but, not, but deny its power. That would, that would describe the church of Sardis. They had a form of godliness, but denying its power, a form of godliness. They had the outward shape, the appearance of being alive without the reality of being alive. I think a lot of people like to take the, the church of Sardis and, and they want to apply it to so many de- denominational churches. And if you are, if you've grown up in a denomination and I mentioned one of these denominations, I, I'm not, I hope you're not offended. But if you look at, for example, the Methodist Church, right? Started by John and Charles Wesley, the Wesley brothers. That was a move of God. That was a move of the Holy Spirit at that time in those people. A great denomination. But if you look at it at the institution, I'm not taking individual churches, but the institution, the denomination, it's a shell of what it was once was. The Lutheran Church, started by Martin Luther. What an amazing move of God. The Reformation basically uh, started there. And yet you look at so many of those churches today, and, I, and, and God would probably look at them and say, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You could talk about the Presbyterians. They were influenced by John Calvin, started by John Knox there in Scotland, or the Baptists, John Smith and Thomas Helwes. I mean, all these different denominations. They had such a, such a great move of God at their time. They were, it, was, it was a move of the Holy Spirit that started these churches. And yet so many of them now, they're a shell of what they were. The Lord would look at them and they say, you have a name that you're alive, but, but you're dead. But again, we could just say, well, okay, it's those, we're not one of those denominations, so we're good. You know, we're okay. We're alive. But we really need to examine this letter because I think it, it, it's applicable to us as well as any other church and us as individuals. So let's look at it. The question is, in what way are they dead and how did it happen? So first of all, in what way are they dead? And I think the key to understanding that is in how Jesus reveals himself to the church of Sardis. It's in verse 1. These things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We look at the seven spirits first. Those are not seven distinct spirits. But what I believe he's referring to or what this is a picture of is the sevenfold Spirit of God. These churches, 
They had a name, a reputation, or a history of being alive. From the outside, the appearance was that they were alive. They were outwardly impressive, but not before God. Why? Because they were spiritually dead. They were no longer relying on the power of the, per- or the no longer relying on the person of the Holy Spirit. One of the reasons I don't like to just say, well, this belongs to a church history, whether church age, or, or this belongs to, this is just applicable to these, these, these dead denominations or anything like that. What about the Calvary Chapel movement? It's, you know, 1965 roughly is when it started. That was definitely a move of the Holy Spirit. It was an amazing move of the Holy Spirit. The dove right over there on the wall, that's a symbol of, of, of the, the, the Holy Spirit. And that, that, the move of the Holy Spirit and the dove, Calvary Chapel movement. Um, you know, so many of, of the pastors, myself included, we didn't have any seminary training. We didn't know how to do church. The Lord just called us into ministry fell in love with Jesus, the Lord called us into ministry, and, and, and we just started doing ministry. We just started doing. We started, you know, leading, you know, doing Bible studies, and this church started as a Bible study and grew out of that. But I didn't have the training on how to do church. I remember, man, in the beginning, it's like, it's just like, Lord, I don't even know how to do this. Or, or, you know, the small group that we were in the beginning, just praying, and Lord, how do we do this? What do we do? And, you know, I remember my first wedding, and uh, one of the things that was kind of like my little, it was like, I still have it to this day. I still refer to it. I have this Christian minister's manual that I bought in a bookstore. And I tell you, it's, it's, like, a, it's like cliff notes for pastors. It's like a cheat sheet, you know. What do you do at a funeral? And so, you know, I'm like, okay, I don't, you know, I've been to funerals, but I've never conducted a funeral uh, or a wedding. The first wedding, I, 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 I feel sorry for the couple. They're still married, apparently, but um, it was an outdoor wedding. And uh, is out at Chad and Jen's house and had, you know how the bride, everybody stands up when the bride walks up to the front. So everybody's, you know, please rise. You know, everybody stands up watching the bride walking in. And then I went right back, right into the wedding ceremony. I had forgot to tell anybody to sit down. And partway through, I'm noticing there's a couple people, a blink, blink, blink. And pretty soon everyone's like, I guess it's okay. And then everybody sat down. I didn't know how to do those things. The first funeral we had it was a memorial service, and, uh, you know, I know you're supposed to wear black, so I got all, got all decked out in black and stuff, and I, I sat down in the front row getting ready to share because me and another pastor, we were kind of co-doing and I realized I had white athletic socks on, and my pants, you know, they kind of curled up. You can see this. Everything is black except for this, about this much of pure white socks, you know, tube socks. Uh, it's like, okay. Um, I, you know, I did, a, I did a funeral for my own grandson uh, out in Washington, and, and uh, I had never done a gravesite service before. And so we did the service in the church, and then we did a gravesite service. And at the end of the service, you know, typically the, at the end of the, of the gravesite service, you know, the, the pastor will say, okay, the service is over. You can feel free to stay, but the family is going to stick around a little bit, you know. And, but it gives people that opportunity, okay, it's time to go. I didn't do that. So everybody felt like they had to stay there, and they stayed there until the, our grandson was buried, basically, through the whole process. And, and it was very awkward for some people. I could tell it was awkward, and I was like, but I didn't know those things, you know. And, and, and back then it was just, you know, we had a simple, and, a, and in a lot of times it was a desperate dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do this. I need your I need your spirit. I need your power. I need I need you to guide me. And God did that in those days. And I'm sure any one of those churches it was the same thing, any one of those other denominations. But you see, it's very easy to move away from that. Because after a while it's like, well, I know how to do a funeral service. I know how to do a wedding. I know how to do it. I can do church. I know how to do it. And then pretty soon, if we're not careful we can find ourselves no longer relying on the person of the Holy Spirit. We just, we just know the routine. We know what works. We know what doesn't work. We've learned, right? Um, what's really bad is when a person is no longer relying on the Holy Spirit, and yet they're maintaining that, those, those things. They look like they're spiritual life. They're going through all the motions, but they're actually they're dying, spiritually dying, or they're dead. Well, how about our own individual lives? Have we moved away from the dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit? That's really the application for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. 
verse 17. There's an interesting story in there about David. 2 Samuel 5, verse 17 through 25. And I'm going to read this to you. It says, Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. So, you know, here, just stop there for a moment. David just becomes king, and now the Philistines are going to go to war against him. And so he inquires of the Lord, Lord, should I do this? Is this what you want me to do? And the Lord says, do it. I'm going to be with you. And so he goes. He obeys the Lord. They fight the Philistines, and they rout the Philistines. They're victorious. Verse 22. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Hey, it's the same army, the same battles, the same location. If you were David, what would you do? I know what I would do. Hey, it worked last time. I'm just going to, I don't even need to ask the Lord. because He, he said yes last time. I'm just going to go and I'll do that battle. Verse 23, therefore David inquired of the Lord and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them and come, up, uh, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. If David hadn't inquired of the Lord again, he would have made an assumption. This worked last time, and it would have failed miserably. You and I as believers, sometimes we just, I know this is, I knew, I asked God once that it was, yes, this is, this works, I'm going to just go for it. We need to rely on the person of the Holy Spirit. We need to be in prayer. We need to ask the Lord every time, Lord, is this again what you want me to do? Because it may not be the same answer every time. We need to be sensitive to the Spirit. So we know the problem with Sardis was that they moved away from the dependence of the person of the Holy Spirit. But how did they move away from the dependence of the person of the Holy Spirit? And I think kind of to look at that, we need to look at the role of the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus says, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, what is he referring to, the seven spirits? Now back in verse 1, that was how Jesus introduced himself, right, to, uh, to John. But to understand so much of Revelation, there's so many quotes and references to the Old Testament that I think we need to look back in the Old Testament. Is there any place in the Old Testament where the seven spirits of God are mentioned? And I believe they are. It is in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. If you want to turn there, go ahead. Isaiah 11. Verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is speaking about Jesus. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. I believe this is the description of the sevenfold spirit of God. So I want to take a, just a few moments to look at that. First of all, the spirit of the Lord. What is that referring to? It refers to the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. Okay, he's not a force. So people say the spirit and they, they, they think the spirit is this, this, this ephoral, you know, just this, this may the force be with you type of a thing. No, he's the third person of the Trinity. He is God. 
The next thing is the spirit of wisdom. The word is chokma or yokma. Um, <clears throat> and what is wisdom? It's basically the right and true application of knowledge. You get knowledge, and knowledge is one thing, but how do you use that knowledge? What do you do with that knowledge? That's what wisdom is. When Solomon, David's son, became king, and, you know, in his later years, he moved away from the Lord, too. He did some very foolish things. But when he first became king, the Lord God spoke to Solomon and said, Solomon, you're now king of Israel. Ask me what you want me to do for you. And what did Solomon do? It's in, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. But in 2 Chronicles 1 verse 10, Solomon said this, Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? Solomon said, man, I, I, don't, even know how to, I don't even know how to act like a king in front of these people. I don't, even know, I don't even know how to, what am I supposed to do, Lord? I don't even know. I should have paid attention to my dad, but I didn't. And so he was asking for wisdom. How many times do we just, do we ask the Lord for wisdom or do we just assume that we know? I know how to do this. I don't need to pray about it. The next is the spirit of understanding. That's comprehension or discernment. Before you were a born again believer in Jesus Christ, when you read the word of God, it probably didn't make a whole lot of sense to you. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment. He illuminates scripture. He illuminates things to us. He gives us discernment of situations that we confront in our lives. We need to rely on that discernment of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of counsel. That's advice or guidance. I love this verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. It says, Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. How many times have we just, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this. And we, we make a decision, we do something, and then we go, Lord, will you please bless my, bless what I'm doing? Rather than saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Guide me. Show me what I, what I should do. Or do we make our own plans and then ask God to bless it? I know I've done that before. I'll be just frank with you guys. I've done that before. Lord, okay, I made this decision. Can you please help me? Bail me out, Lord. Help me. Please bless it. The spirit of might. That's power or strength. Isaiah 40, verse 29, he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Our power, our strength comes from the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When we're doing things on our own strength, it's powerless. We have to do things. We have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of knowledge the word describes God's gift of technical or specific knowledge. And there's some pictures of that in the Old Testament. When the, Jews, when the Israelites were building the tabernacle, God told Moses, Hey, I filled Bezalel, I think that's his name, Bezalel or whatever. I filled him with the spirit and understanding. Go find him. He'll start assembling. He'll start building the, 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 the furnishings for the tabernacle. It was an example of someone having uh, a knowledge received from the Holy Spirit. How about in the New Testament? Remember when the church was growing and people were, where everybody was donating, to, you know, they, they were all, it was almost like a commune in the very beginning and everybody was selling property or selling things and they were laying their money at the feet of the apostles. And it, it was just, it was amazing how the Lord was working during that time. Well, there was two people, they, they did that. They sold their property, but they're like, you know, I don't want to lay it all down and fr I, I want to keep a little bit. You know, we need a little nest egg. And, and, and so they agreed to pretend that they gave it all, but they actually kept some back. And Peter, how did he know? 
and only through the discernment of the Holy Spirit, only through a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit, he confronts them. He says, why did you guys hide the light of the Holy Spirit? When that money was in your possession, it was yours. You, you, you didn't have to give it. But now you've lied to the Holy Spirit. You're going to die because of it. And they died. There's another example when Paul, I believe it was when he was in Ephesus, and he's going around. And, and, and there's this, there's this demon-possessed slave girl that's saying, hey, listen to these guys. They, they're, they're, they're speaking about the God. You know, they're speaking about Jesus. They're speaking about the Lord God. They're servants of the Lord God. And, and, and on the outside, people go, wow, hey, these guys, li- listen to her. Listen to what, no. Paul looked at her and realized that she was demon-possessed. And he cast the demon out of her. That's relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's relying on the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but the Spirit gives us knowledge on how to please God. Hosea 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest over me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. You know, God, the Holy Spirit gives us knowledge. How are we to live our lives? How are we to please God? And then... That knowledge is also, the Holy Spirit gives us that knowledge of, of just knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, having that relationship with him. Um, and that knowledge affects our behavior. Proverbs seventeen twenty seven: he who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. These are all things that the Holy Spirit gives us. The Spirit of the Lord, <clears throat> excuse me, the last one is the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And that's a respect or reverence for God and for his word. Proverbs 1 verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord, and then Proverbs 19, 23, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. So, looking at the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God. And he says, Jesus says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And we'll look at the seven stars next. As we found out in chapter one, the stars represent the angels, which could be literal angels, messengers. It could be referring to the pastors of those individual churches. In any event, I think it's referring to the leadership of the church. Why does he say he who holds the seven stars? Because the leadership of the church are not responsible and accountable to any human. They're accountable to the Holy Spirit. Accountable to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus Christ himself. It's his church. He's the one that calls the shots. And that's a heavy thing that... that all pastors, all church leadership should be aware of. Paul told the elders at the church of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It's serious business to lead a flock of God's people. They're his people. They're not, they're not, you're not my people. I, I do claim you because you're, I love you guys. But you're really, you're God's shepherd. Or you're God's people. I'm just an under-shepherd. Another way a church can become spiritually dead, and I think maybe this might even be the root cause, or root cause, depending on what part of the country you're from, it's no longer considering the scriptures as the God-breathed, inspired word of God. And I think that's where a lot of these denominations have gone sideways in their theology. They no longer... They no longer believe in the authority of the Holy Scriptures. There's questioning. Well, I don't think the Lord really meant that, you know. I, I think we can apply that, but I don't think that fits. We can't really, we can't, you know, it doesn't apply to us. And now we're God. We're the ones p- picking and choosing what God's Word is. Peter said this in 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is inspired, right? Hebrews 4, 12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
Listen, the Bible, God himself says that the word of God, his word is living. And if the living word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit is no longer an authority in a church, that church is dying and it may already be dead. Okay, it's on its way to death. I think that's probably the root cause. And when you and I move away from scriptures, the same thing for us as individuals as well. They may have a name that they're alive, they're active, but they're active in the sense of like, and I haven't, I've never witnessed this, but cutting a chicken's head off. I've never, I've never witnessed it myself, but I've heard that there's a flurry of activity when you cut off a chicken's head. They look more alive than they did before you cut off their head, right? They're moving all over the place, all kinds of activity, but in reality, it's dead. Why? Because it's been disconnected from the head. And there are so many churches and so many people, they go through the motions, they got lots of activity, they look alive, but they're disconnected from the head. So what's Christ's unique message to the church of Sardis? It's in verses 2 and 3. Be watchful. That's the very first thing. Be watchful. See, some of these spiritually dead churches, they not only moved away from the dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit, They not only moved away from the authority of the inspired word of God, but they also have moved away from a belief in the imminent return of Christ for his church. The remedy for lethargic, routine religiosity is to wake up to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Listen, when you're kids, I remember as a kid, you know, goofing off with my brothers and stuff and doing all kinds of stuff and fighting and breaking things and messing up the stuff. But we knew when our parents came home, Hey, dad, dad or mom's on their way home. We better get our act together. We better straighten up. We better act like nothing happened, you know, clean up everything, you know, because we don't want And having that sense that, hey, the Lord could return at any time. It has a purifying effect on our lives. But when we start going, ah, you know, there's, there's too many other things that have to happen before Jesus can return. He's not returning this, you know, the temptation is, well, I, I, I can just live as I want to live. I don't have to worry about it anymore. So the remedy for lethargic routine religiosity is a wake up to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, be watchful. The next thing he says, strengthen the things which remain and that are ready to die. You know, God is so merciful. He's already told them that they're dead, but he's not giving up on this church. He says, hey, there's, there's still a little something there. And he wants to fan it back into flame. Maybe you're here today and you feel like, man, I've gone so far away from, the, from relying on the power or the relying on the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is speaking to you today. Hey, there's still hope. There's still hope for you. He says, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. What do I mean? We have to do perfect works now. That work really means complete. Your works are not complete before God. See, their work was done in the strength of their own flesh and not in the strength of the Spirit. And no matter what we do, we could, we could go through the religious motions, we could do all these Christian things, but if we're doing it in our own strength, God's not pleased with it. It's not complete. It's only complete when we surrender and we say, and we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. He says, Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. That's fascinating to me because remember the church of Ephesus. What did the Lord tell them? He said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Where had they fallen? They had fallen from their first love, that place of intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. They had, so they, they needed to go back to that place of being in that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, their first or best love. So he says, remember where you have fallen, the church of Ephesus. He also didn't say, remember what you have received. The church of Pergamum and the church of Thyatira were dealing with doctrine, false doctrine. That wasn't the issue with Sardis. They didn't have false doctrine issues. He says to them, remember how you have received and heard. And he's referring to the the, the work of the person of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Because that's how any one of you have come to faith in the Lord. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working in us that draws us to the Lord. Paul wrote to the Galatians. 
in chapter 3, 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? And, you know, it's so easy for us to do that. It's simple. It's easy to do that. You and I, in this church, Sardis, they needed to go back to that simple, complete reliance on the person of the Holy Spirit. He also says this in verse 4 to them. He says, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now what's interesting about that, Jesus had some praise for the church in Pergamon. And they were, they were bad, but he had some praise for Pergamon, but they had a few there who held the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. We talked about that before. Jesus also had some praise for Thyatira, but they had a few there who were involved with the wicked woman Jezebel and knew the deep things of Satan. But Jesus has no praise for Sardis, but they have a few there who had not defiled their garments. It's just flipped the other way around. Fascinating. For those who had not defiled their garments, Jesus says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White garments, we'll see later as we go through the book of Revelation. It's in the Old Testament too. It represents the righteousness of Christ that you and I are clothed in when we come to faith in Christ Jesus. All our deeds are like, right, are like dirty rags, but we're given Christ's righteousness. We're given that clean robe of righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's what that's referring to. And those that are clothed in the righteousness of Christ will one day walk with Jesus in close fellowship. Can you imagine that? Being in the presence of the Lord without your flesh. Because right now, you know, we had worship this morning, right? And maybe... And this morning, it was maybe it was hard to worship this morning, right? Because you're seeing the, the heating guy walking back and forth. Or you're thinking, you know, I don't want to sit so close to this person. You know, or man, I just, this is not, this is, I, I just, you know, and our mind is nowhere near worshiping the Lord. We're just thinking about, well, this is kind of odd that we're doing this, you know. That's our flesh. One day, that sinful flesh, that failed human flesh, we, we're going to be with Jesus in purity and in holiness. That, the worship like you've never worshipped before because you're going to see him face to face right in his presence. That's what he's, that's what he's, he's, he's telling that to these, those that had not defiled their garments. You know, some of the mainline Protestant denominations as an institution or as a denomination, some have moved away from the authority of Scripture. Some have moved away from the person of the Holy Spirit and they don't believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. They are spiritually dead, the denominations. However, however, don't write them off necessarily because there are people within those denominations that are born again, that love Jesus Christ. There are born again on fire for Jesus Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, you know, you can name any denomination you want. It's easy for us to just say, well, well, this just applies to them. You know, no, this is, this is a word for us too. And so in this case, instead of a promise of his coming, he has a warning of his coming. And that's in verse 3. He says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And what's fascinating about this is that when Jesus said this to the church in Sardis, it would have brought up a mental picture for them that was, that was just burned into their memory as a city. You see, the city of Sardis was located on the northern slope of Mount Tmolus. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. And there was a river, Pactolus, that flowed at the base of the mountain. At one point, the city had a lower city and an upper city. The lower city was where the, the uh, common folk lived, you know, the poor, just the ordinary citizens lived. The upper town of Mount, on Mount Tmolus, not Tomless, Tmolus, was where the wealthy citizens, the royal family, and the palace was located. One of the spurs of that mountain had an acropolis. It's like a citadel. And uh, it was located right, on that, right on, that, on that spur of that mountain. On all sides but one, the rock face of that mountain and the, that citadel or the acropolis was so steep, the walls were nearly perpendicular and they were unscalable. There was only one possible access, and it was on the south side, but this side was just as steep as the other sides. Because of the impossibility of anyone scaling the rock walls, 
that Acropolis there in Sardis was considered impregnable from invading armies. It was like, it was the best place military to live. Well, in 549, remember I mentioned Croesus, the king, the, the very wealthy king? When Cyrus the Persian was starting to conquer lands, Croesus in 549 BC tried to conquer Cyrus. He attacked Cyrus and his armies, but he failed and he retreated back to Sardis for the winter. In those days, you did your battles in the spring. In fact, I think even the armed forces, um, did they do that? They don't, they don't fight in the winter, do they? I don't know. Well, anyways, <laughs> you know, sometimes they do their battles when the weather's good, you know, you want to get stuck in the mud or whatever. And, and it was the same thing. He figured that Cyrus would wait till the winter and then come back. And, but Cyrus didn't. He pursued Croesus and the Lydians all the way back to Sardis. And so at that point, Croesus went up into the Acropolis to flee Cyrus. The Persians, they invaded that lower town because that lower town was basically easy pickings. Uh, but they weren't able to scale the walls of this Acropolis to invade it. So they built a siege. They per- basically just sieged it. They surrounded it and they waited for two weeks. And one night, according to legend, one night as these Persian soldiers, they're just sitting there watching there was a Lydian soldier up on, up on top of the Acropolis and he dropped his helmet and it fell all the way down to the ground. And he didn't know that the Persians were watching him, but they saw, all of a sudden they noticed that this one soldier made his way down that one south side. Evidently there was a path, steep, but there was a path. He made it all the way down and picked up his helmet and went back up there. And they said, aha, here's a way in. That same night, this one soldier that saw that led a whole Persian army up that path. When they got up there, there was hardly any guards watching the place because they didn't need to worry about it. And they were attacked and they were conquered. The funny thing, or the sad thing maybe, about 300 years later, almost the exact same thing happened at that city. So when Jesus says, watch out, you know, when he says, Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. They, they're like, oh, I know what he's talking about. Because like a thief in the night, Sardis was conquered by Cyrus. And so Jesus is warning to a dead church, be watchful, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. And then he says, remember how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Otherwise, I'm coming at a day and an hour you don't expect. You know, he's speaking of his return for the church or judgment or both. And then finally, or not finally, next to finally, (laughs) his promise to the individual overcomer, verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. The book of life, that's a fascinating study in itself. In Revelation 20, we'll get to it when we get to Revelation 20, verse 12. John says this, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. Everything that a person says, done, or thought is recorded in books that will one day be opened and read and revealed to everybody. But there's also a book of life. And it's real too. And it will be read as well. Verse 15 of chapter 20, Revelation 20. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So not only is the book of life real, important, it's going to be read, but your eternal fate depends on whether your name is written in that book of life or not. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 10, verse 20, they were rejoicing in the, you know, they're like, man, even the demons are subject to us. You know, Jesus had sent them out to do mission work and and there was power. Things were happening and they came back. They're like, man, even the demons are listening to us. And Jesus says this to them, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, rejoice in that this morning. If it's not, please meet me after. I want to pray with you so that your name will get written in the Lamb's book of life. 
But Jesus says here, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. And that raises some interesting questions. What about once saved, always saved? What about eternal security? I'm not going to answer that today. (laughs) We're not even going to talk about that today. And the reason why is because I think the context here doesn't deal with being blotted out. Listen, the context here, Jesus is speaking to the overcomer. And he's giving them assurance. And he says, I will not blot out your name from the book of life. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, could you imagine, finally, you get up to heaven, and Jesus says, oh, you didn't get the memo? The membership changed, <laughs> you know, or man, or, you know, oh, you missed the date. I've gone, I've gone, sometimes I've had a rebate or something or a coupon and I go and I, I'm all excited to go there and I realize, man, I, I just, I, I'm like a day late. <laughs> it's like, oh, shoot. But you know what? If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're not going to show up and they're going to say, hey, sorry, you must have missed the memo or you missed the, missed the no, the, no, your name will not be blotted out of the Lamb's book of life but I want to share this and I'm not going to get into it but there are four other verses in the Bible that reference God blotting someone's name out of the book of life okay and I know some people are really I mean there's there's like the eternal security is like that's that's the thing that if a church doesn't hold to that then that's their apostate or whatever um, I just want to say this I don't think God makes empty threats okay um, but it is it's a warning we should heed But he's not warning the overcomer here. He's assuring the overcomer here. And so that's the context, I think, for us here this morning. Not only will he not blot out his name from the book of life, but he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That word confess, it can mean to acknowledge openly and joyfully. Jesus is going to openly and joyfully introduce you to the father when you get up to heaven and is and before the angels what a contrast to <clears throat> i'm a christian <clears throat> yeah i'm a, I'm a christian <laughs> you know i love <clears throat> jesus you know sometimes we're, we're we get to the point where like maybe everybody's against us and we're like yeah, i'm afraid of Matt that i'm the only one here that's i love jesus but when you and i get to heaven he's going to openly and joyfully profess us before his father and before his angels It'd be like you and I coming into a room and, and uh, you know, President Trump, for example, says, hey, Mary, this is Mary. She lives in Rochester. I'm so glad she's here. I want you to introduce you to the rest of my family, Mary. Can you imagine that walking into the White House and that happening? Otherwise, it'd be like, Mary who? <laughs> you know, but, but really, and that's, that's the picture we have here. Jesus will confess our name before the Father and before his angels. You know, there's a lot of people who will tell you, I know Jesus. A lot of people will say, I know Jesus. In fact, if you were to poll the people in the church of Sardis at that day, you would say, do you know Jesus? And I bet you not one of them would, I bet you every one of them would say, yeah, I know Jesus. They would confess Jesus. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you can can jump up and down and tell everybody, I know Jesus, I know Jesus, and that's great. But the real issue is, does Jesus know you? Do you have that relationship with him? And then finally, the admonition for the individual to hear what the Spirit says. And I think that's the Holy Spirit speaking to us this morning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to do one thing a little bit different this morning. And and we'll have the worship team come up here in just a moment. Instead of having a, a place in the back, because there is no place in the back here for you guys to go and get to get prayer, I want to. I just want to open this up for all of us. And like I said, you know, it's so easy to move away from our dependence on the person of the Holy Spirit. It's so easy to move away to to rely on our own strength to do things in our own strength. This morning, I want to pray for each one of us. And 
if you are one of those, and, and I'll, we'll, I'll have you guys close your eyes so you don't feel embarrassed, but if you would like prayer, like, yeah, I, I've drifted, and I, I, need, I need to turn back to the Lord. I need, I need, to, I need to rely on the, on the Holy Spirit. Um, I, I just, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hands. You want to stand up. There's no confessions or anything. Just, and, and I want to pray for you. So raise your hands. Just pray for you. So why don't we all close our eyes, except for me, because i got to look at you guys. <laughs> and it, it, if you are here this morning and the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, I just encourage you just to lift your hand up and I want to pray for you this morning. Is there anybody here that this just, just, just spoke to them this morning? All right. Praise the Lord. Okay, you can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we confess. Lord, we've begun with the Holy Spirit. Well, Lord, we wouldn't be born-again believers if it wasn't for a relationship with your Holy Spirit. But, Lord, we do confess that we've gone and done things in our own strength. Lord, we haven't consulted you. We haven't sought your guidance. We haven't done things in your power. Lord, this morning... I thank you for reminding each one of us that we need to rely on the person of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Lord, that you, you speak to us and you, you, you guide us, Lord, and you warn us and you comfort us. And Lord Jesus, this morning, I pray that you would fill those that raise their hand, Lord, I pray you would fill them with your Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, I pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would baptize afresh us afresh, Lord God, in, in your spirit this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning. I pray your blessing on each and every person here this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Luke, you want to come on up?